I just want to sit in my comfy chair in my favorite sitting room by the fire just as the tea kettle begins to sing. And that was not the last time that he wished for that. That's a line taken from a well-known book called The Hobbit. And it repeats four times throughout the story. Because you have a character going on a journey of challenge. And he yearns to go back to his creature comforts. We all have creature comforts. Some of us have a certain food that we gravitate toward. Um, Some of us have a certain temperature, a certain place, location, warm maybe, a jacuzzi, uh, a nice hoodie sweatshirt on in a cold room. I don't know, under the covers and never getting out. We have our creature comforts. We have our creature comforts when it comes to television or to movies or people we hang out with. What happens is life can get stressful. Life can get challenging. We can feel like we're no longer in the control we want to be in. So we look to these comforts and we gravitate toward them. Because then we feel like the world's okay. What we're going to see in Joshua is that creature comforts can actually get in the way of us moving into and living in the promised land fully. So what is Joshua about? The book of Joshua is about Israel. This people whom God birthed through Abraham and through his offspring to be his people, to be his light to the world, so that he could get the world to see what it looks like to live under the kingship of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And they go into slavery in Egypt, and he miraculously delivers them. He takes them through the wilderness, and they aren't always obedient, so it takes them a really long time to get through the wilderness to this land he's promised them, a land flowing with milk and honey, which is a Hebrew phrase for abundance. Uh, the milk coming from your livestock being abundant. The honey from your fruits and your crops being abundant. It was a land that was going to give them all of their needs. And it was a land that was exceedingly corrupt. So God was going to move in his people into this beautiful land so that the world could see what it looks like to have Yahweh living through people on the earth. They're coming to this promised land in Joshua. They enter into it. And there's some battles that happen because some people are not willing to let go. And we see a metaphor for us of what it looks like to move into that place of abundance that God wants us to live in. And I don't just mean, I don't mean actually at all material abundance. I mean the abundance of my life has purpose. I have these gifts or this calling or this dream and this vision that I have been put on the earth to see fulfilled. And the promised land is what happens when I begin to live in that calling, vision, and dream. And Israel, as we see, it's not easy. It's not just, oh yeah, God's going to just dump everything on me. It takes putting your foot in the Jordan River so that it will part. It takes marching around the city of Jericho seven times in a very odd manner so that it will fall. It takes learning how to navigate the people around us who might be lying to us and deceiving us so that we can pray to Yahweh, pray to God to find out, is this your direction for me or not? We've seen some of these mistakes and these challenges that Israel goes through. And now they are at this point where the promised land is subdued. It's conquered. The battles are over. They have taken down all of the military strongholds and they were listed for us in chapter 12. So now in chapter 13, they're gathering together and they're going to cast lots, dice, to see who gets what portion of land as it's been divvied up. And they're going to go into their sections of the land and they're going to then 
meet their neighbors, the Canaanites is what they're called. They're going to meet their Canaanite neighbors and they're going to either say, hey, we're going to do things Yahweh's way or you're welcome to go do your own thing in another land. That's the goal now. So they're kind of cleaning things up and bringing in God's culture to the land. Um, That should be a challenge. So let me show you um, what is going on here. If you look at chapter 11, backward a little bit, chapter 11, verse 23, you see this. Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord, Yahweh, had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. War is over. Um, If you look at chapter 18, verse 1. The whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. That's the tabernacle. That's the place of worship. The land lay subdued before them. It's at rest. It's subdued. And now the temple is coming in. This is a sign that Yahweh owns the land. Uh, I skipped one. If you go back to chapter 14. No, I didn't skip it. Never mind. We're doing that later. Um, And then finally, if you look at chapter 21. Verse 43. 2143. Thus Yahweh gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it. And they settled there. And Yahweh gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for Yahweh had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of the good promises that Yahweh had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. God had been faithful to his promises to them because they were willing to follow. Now, what I want you to see in this, these three passages, is that there's this, this refrain of the land had rest from war. The enemies were subdued. They weren't going to rival them anymore militarily. And so you have this picture of, we did it! Let's just like settle into these cities we did not build and eat from these vineyards that we did not plant and these trees that we did not plant. And let's just kick back and say, we did it, people. There's a temptation here, isn't there, to say, we've arrived. We've got it nailed. Let's just sit back in our easy chair by the fire and sip some tea and listen to stories and watch television. That's the temptation that is presented here. And unfortunately, because we are creatures of comfort, we tend to do this often. We make some progress and we say, good enough, I'm going to chill now. I've done my time. I've done my part in the world. I've done my thing for God. I'm just going to write it out now. And notice what's going to happen. We're going to do a little more verse looking real quick. Um, Notice in chapter 13, verse 13. So they're giving the land to different tribes, and we're going to see what they do with it. 13, verse 13. Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Machathites. I don't know who these people are. Just know that they're neighbors that they're not supposed to live with. But Geshur and Machath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. What did they do? They moved into their cities, and they said, eh, you can stay. Okay. Go forward to chapter 15, 
Now, this is about the tribe, Judah, who has the city Jerusalem, which, uh, if you haven't heard of that, you will later in the Bible. Verse 63, the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Israel, or the people of Judah, could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. 16, chapter 16, verse 10, just down a little further. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gazar. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. So there's three examples of what's going on. The land is subdued. Ah, oh, we can rest. They go in and they're not finishing their job. They're settling for less. And what you're going to see in the next book of the Bible, Judges, is that these people that they just let linger, they just say, ah, we're done being challenged. We're not going to push them out. We're just going to grow comfortable with their presence around us. What you're going to see in the next book, Judges, is that this is going to become a severe problem for them. They're going to be thorns in their eyeballs, it says. That's irritating. I haven't had that happen, but I have actually seen my brother get that in his eye, and it was an interesting medical experiment, uh, procedure. It wasn't an experiment. Um, It's not going to be good for them. So here we see this tendency in Israel to be creatures of comfort. We have this tendency ourselves to be creatures of comfort. And what we need for ourselves is to recognize that there is a balance that God wants in our lives. What I'm not going to say is that God needs you to get off your butt and challenge yourself and push yourself and make yourself go crazy and be completely uncomfortable the rest of your life. I am not saying that. In fact, that's bad advice because then you're going to get stressed out and you're going to turn to some of the vices that you've been saved from in your stress and you're actually going to backslide. That's not good either. God does not want you to be lazy and chilling and comfortable, at least too comfortable, nor does he want you to be too challenged where you're off balance. Somewhere there's a middle where God wants us to live as if on a teeter-totter, balancing delicately this, this balance between comfort and challenge. Comfort and challenge. Not one end of the teeter-totter is dominating the other. Because the way a teeter-totter works is you have two people on each side and they're bouncing back and forth and there's a balancing act that happens. You get a little bit of this side and a little bit of that side. And God wants us to be at a place where we're comfortable with life, yet also at a place where we're challenged in life. So, if you will, let's look at chapter 14. And this is where we're going to look at our first passage, our first example. Boredom, by the way, is one of the devil's greatest tools in our lives. But boredom is misunderstood. Boredom has nothing to do with having nothing to do. Boredom is about not being challenged in what you have to do. You can be incredibly busy and be incredibly bored because nothing challenges you. And a very dangerous combination is that kind of boredom with success. And Israel, it seems, as we're going to see in Judges, gets to this place where they're bored. We have the excitement of getting into the promised land, but now we're sitting here with nothing to do. 
And I, I have a feeling some Christians are like, is that what heaven's going to be like? All this life of struggle to get there and then what? Um, sorry, God isn't like that. God is this perfect balance of comfort and challenge. And that's what we're going to see one example of somebody getting it right here. So Joshua chapter 14, verse 6. So this is where they're dividing the land amongst the people. But we meet this one character who has this very special request. So 14.6. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him. Okay, so Caleb. Do you remember Caleb? And we've gotten really familiar with Joshua because he's been the hero of this book, the leader into the promised land, to the point that you can almost forget about Caleb. Caleb was the guy who was right next to Joshua, way back in the wilderness. You might remember in the book of Numbers, Israel comes to the promised land the first time. They send 12 spies into the land who go around for 40 days, come back, and then report what they see. All 12 confirm and bring the fruit to prove it, that this land is amazing. What God wants for us is perfect. Then 10 of these 12 say one more thing and say, but giants live there. And we were like grasshoppers in their sight. We cannot do this. This is beyond our ability. The other two who said they're wrong God can do this through us. We're going to do this. He promised it, and we're going to get it. Let's go now and take the land. Those two were named Joshua and Caleb. You remember what happened next? The whole congregation looked at the ten and listened to their fear tactic, listened to the two and said, eh. And so they sided with the ten and said, we can't do this. They're right. God has brought us here to kill us. And so they side with them and rebel against God, and they go through the wilderness for 40 more years. And what did God say? Why 40 years? He said, because this generation that has refused my best for them, they got to die off. And the new generation, they're the ones that are going to get it. And God said one exception. Joshua and Caleb, because they believed in me, they will get to enter the promised land. And so Joshua is the leader into the promised land. And Caleb, his companion, is now getting his inheritance in the land. But this is what I love. So Caleb is old at this point. You're going to see that in just a minute. And he's getting his inheritance. And he's got the whole lay of the land in front of him. He's like one of the top picks here. And he could have picked the beachside resort. He could have picked the mountaintop resort with the ski slopes and all. He could have picked anything. But you know what he does pick? Well, let's keep reading. So in the middle of verse 6, he says, You know what Yahweh said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me, Joshua? I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of Yahweh, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers, the other 10 spies, who went up with me, made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed Yahweh my God. And Moses swore on that day saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed Yahweh my God. And now, behold, 
Yahweh has kept me alive just as he said these 45 years since the time that Yahweh spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. Pause. Hold your finger there. These 45 years. He said, I was 40 years old when we went to spy out the land and the whole rebellion thing happened. 45 years later, here I am in the land. How old is he? 40 plus 45 equals 85. Don't get out your calculator. I'm pretty sure. For 85 years old. Yeah. He should be kicking back at the beachside resort. He should be. Now he's going to get to his request. Pick up where you put your finger. And now, Caleb says, Behold, I am this day... Oh, the answer was there. You guys cheated. I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. Holy cow. He's 85 years old. And he says, I might have a kink in my neck, but I still feel like I'm 40. Let's do this, Joshua. Everyone's like, okay, Caleb, dude, settle down. (laughs) Like, we just took the land. Wasn't that enough? And Caleb's like, no, there's still so much more. But you know what I I see beautiful in this? Is we see the secret of Caleb's strength is that he's a guy who never settles for his creature comforts. He's a guy who lives on the teeter-totter of comfort and challenge. Listen to what he asks for now in verse 12. So, Joshua, now give me this hill country of which Yahweh spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there. The Anakim were the race of giants. With great fortified cities, it may be that Yahweh will be with me and I shall drive them out just as Yahweh said. Joshua, do you remember that day we went into the promised land and we saw the Anakim, the giants, and we're like grasshoppers in their eyes and the other 10 were terrified, but we're like, no, let's do this. But we never got our wish fulfilled because the whole congregation rebelled. Now's our chance, Joshua. Give me that land that nobody wanted. I want to take them now. I want to take down the giants that the rest of our dead generation and forefathers were too scared to take down. I want to do it. He's 85 years old, and he wants to go take down those giants. This is living on, the, on that teeter-totter of comfort and challenge. Because Caleb sees a land that he likes, and he knows this is God's promised land. And I'm going to settle there, and this is where I'm going to be for the rest of my life. But I don't want to go where it's easy. I want to go where there's a little bit of challenge. I want to go where I'm going to be constantly sharpened, where I'm constantly having to be on my toes, where I'm not going to get bored with this land or this lot in life. And that, brothers and sisters, is perhaps one of the best ways we can grow like Caleb and grow up well. And grow up with energy and grow up with purpose. One of the saddest things in our society today is what happens to many people after retirement. Where we can begin to age and feel like we're no longer relevant. Because society's all about youth. It's not a secret. They want young people on TV. They want young actors and actresses. And when you get older and uglier, you become a director. Like that, Everyone just wants the youth movement, right? Because they have the energy and we all lose our energy. Every year we lose a little bit more. 
And, and, and when we retire, we no longer have people that need us. We no longer have these tasks. And it, it can become, it can be a thing where we start to feel irrelevant. And we even get bored with life. And it's like, why am I here? On one hand, maybe because we're choosing creature comforts. And look, we lived our whole life and worked hard. I just want to coast the rest. Maybe. And maybe we're like, I don't have the energy to bring on challenge. You don't have to take on a nine-foot giant. Like for Caleb, he's a warrior. That's his thing. Challenge is not always size. Challenge can be very little things that keep us on the edge of our comfort zone. Challenge for you may be deciding that, I have a lot to offer younger people. I'm going to get to know one and pour into them. <laughs> That's a challenge. How do I talk to them? How do they work? What button do I push? <laughs> How do I get them to calm down? They're very dramatic. What do I do with this? That's a challenge. A challenge for you may be um, getting involved with uh, a ministry. Uh, maybe you want to be involved in helping. Like, hey, what are your needs? Like, I, these are my skills, or this is what I can do, or this is what I have time for. What can I do for this? It's just always having that one thing to look for, to keep moving forward, living on that teeter-totter of comfort and challenge. And Caleb is still going because the giants are before him. Now, this is important because... I believe everybody, no matter their age, has a very important purpose, especially the 85-year-old Caleb. We need 85-year-old Calebs. We need 85-year-old Calebs. We need them to pour into a generation that's lost and whose um, family unit is not necessarily doing this for them. We need the 85-year-old wise people. We need the 85-year-old Caleb's who have taken down a giant or two to teach us how to do the same. Yeah? There is never-ending purpose in the kingdom of God. Age matters not to be relevant in the kingdom of God. In fact, what I observe as I've been watching people that I've looked up to, it seems that the more experience we get in life, the more valuable we become in the kingdom of God. And friends, this is great news because we live in a world, America, that says you are becoming increasingly irrelevant the more experience you get in life. But God has a totally different way of looking at humanity. And God wants you, I want to be like Caleb. I look at people that are living like Caleb, and I, it makes me excited. Man, when I was in my like younger, ignorant, young 20s, I was like, who wants to age? I'll go to the Middle East and just become a martyr before my back starts to hurt. That looks miserable. And like, honestly, society gives you a very negative view of aging. But as I've begun to grow in little pieces and pockets of wisdom, have my own experiences— I've begun to get excited about, oh my goodness, look at what I am in my 30s compared to what I was in my 20s. What am I going to be in my 40s and 50s and 60s? And see, this is the truth about walking with God is that the day gets brighter and brighter as you go with him. That's what, this is just coming to my top of my head. So it's Proverbs 4 somewhere. You guys can look it up. Proverbs 4 something says something about for the righteous, the day gets brighter up until the noon. 
that's what it's like walking with God. It keeps getting bigger and better and brighter. And I want to have all of us, no matter our age in this room, you might be at Caleb's age or you might be way on the south end of it looking up to it. Caleb is a giant and we need giants in the church. We need giants in the world that stand up and say, you don't have to live a puny life. Just find the balance between challenge and comfort. So that's hopeful. God says all of us count no matter where we are in life. And if you're 85 and haven't quite gotten on the bandwagon of God yet, you know it's not too late. And you have 85 years of sin to teach us what not to do. It's amazing. It's amazing. Um, yeah, so that's really important and necessary. Here's the other reason it's really important and necessary. If you don't have a giant to challenge you in life, something to kind of keep you on the edge of your comfort zone, keep you growing, keep you young, if you don't have a giant, you're going to create a giant. We all create giants, especially bored people. We create giants where they don't exist. We create giants out of people who shouldn't be giants, and we begin to attack the wrong things. We're going to see this play out in chapter 22. So go forward to chapter 22. Why does Caleb need giants to go fight? Because if you don't have them, you're going to create them, and it's not pretty. Chapter 22, verse 7. Before you read verse 7, real brief, you might remember, the Jordan River flows on the eastern edge of the eastern edge of the promised land. Three, well, two and a half tribes, you might remember, before they entered the promised land, before the book of Joshua, they settled outside the Jordan River, right? They're on the east side. Two and a half said, oh, this land's perfect. We don't want to keep going. We're going to settle right here. And Moses said, okay, just please help your brothers conquer the land. Then you can go back. The land's conquered. So now they're going back to their land, okay? So two and a half tribes are on the eastern side, and then you got the rest on the western side. So east versus west. It's already setting up a dichotomy, isn't it? So in verse 7 now, 22-7, now, to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had... No, verse 10, my bad. 22, verse 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan... So the two and a half tribes are going home. When they come to that region, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan River, an altar of imposing size... Let me help you through this. Because on one hand, you're thinking, oh, no big deal. They're really godly. They want to worship Yahweh. They built this humongous altar. Good for them. Not good for them. Yahweh made it very clear. There's one place you're to worship me on one altar. And it's in my tabernacle, which at the moment is on the west side. So these eastern tribes are to travel into the west side to make sacrifices and worship Yahweh. By erecting their own altar on the east side, it looks like they are rebelling against Yahweh, creating their own religion and their own temple and their own sacrifice and worship system. It looks like they're breaking off from the western tribes. So they build this imposing altar, imposing altar, huge size. This doesn't look good, the western tribes say. So keep going with me. Verse 11. 
and the people of Israel. That's the west side. The westerners heard it said, behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Okay, the east side makes this altar. The west side says, they can't do that. Raise the army. Let's go get them. So really quickly, this whole thing escalates to civil war because the east side is not playing the game with the west side. And the west side is judging what the east side is doing. And they're not talking. They're coming together to fight. Okay, do you remember what we just read? How the tribes went into their land and they let their neighbors live there because they just wanted to live cozy, comfortable lives. They don't want to be challenged. None of them were doing what Caleb's doing and taking down the giants. Yeah, they're living comfortable lives, which means they're kind of getting to this point where they're restless and bored because they have no giants to fight in their life. So now they hear one little thing that sounds a bit wrong on the eastern side, like, what? That is something to go attack. Come on, everybody. And the gossip's spreading. The slander's going around. They're like, let's go get them. They deserve to be beheaded. And they go over there and create this drama storm because they're bored. Because they have no giants in their life to fight, they have to find one in their brothers on the east side. Here's what they find out and what they should have found out at the beginning. So in verse 21, they come to bring battle and the eastern side like, oh my goodness, they're overreacting. And so the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the family of Israel... Uh, the mighty one, God, Yahweh, the mighty one, God, Yahweh, he knows and let Israel itself know if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against Yahweh, do not spare us for building an altar to turn away from following Yahweh. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may Yahweh himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might, your Western children might say to our Eastern children, what have you to do with Yahweh, the God of Israel? For Yahweh has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in Yahweh. That's what they're afraid of. They're afraid that down the road, they're going to see each other as different from each other. So they're explaining So your children might make our children cease to worship Yahweh. Verse 26, therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do not perform the service of Yahweh in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in Yahweh. (laughs) So they're explaining themselves, right? They're saying in translation here, they're saying, hey, chill out. We built this altar to remind everybody that we're on the same team. We're not going to worship on it. It's going to remind us that we belong to you and we're going to travel over there and worship God. So what do you think the west side says when they hear the east side's explanation? Read verse 30. 
When Phinehas, the priest, and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with them, heard the words of the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the people of Manasseh, the east side, it was good in their eyes. Verse 33. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel, and the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war. (laughs) So there's this moment where they come together and the east side explains their intentions and the west side goes, oh, we might have overacted a bit. Sorry about that. And went back home. Um, But this happens. This happens. We inflict conflict on ourselves. We stir up drama among other people because we aren't challenged. We become busybodies or gossips or slanderers. We want to try to create division or, or set out these false, false teaching alarms all around the world because we need to feel important because we're not challenged in life. We're feeling forgotten. We just want people to know. So we, so we stir up things in negative ways so that people notice us, so that we feel like something's happening in life that's interesting. It's what reality TV is all about. It's about inciting conflict and excitement because people don't have a life. And, and you see this, you see this in people, especially young people who just haven't really learned wisdom yet. They live life like a reality TV show and inciting drama because they're bored. Because they don't have Caleb's teaching them how to find giants that are real giants and not creating these dramas in life. And brothers and sisters, God wants us to grow to full maturity. And the question is, are we going to be Caleb's who actually have a purpose or are we going to be the western warriors who have no purpose and are trying to pick a fight because they need something to do are we going to live like adolescents who have lived a long time or are we going to live like Caleb's who are putting that long time to good use and what are we striving for on the way yeah growing giants we're either going to go find them and or we're going to create them out of nothing and that's not good for anybody and this is because we don't always have the best balance of comfort and challenge when's the last time you did something that scared you when's the last time you failed at something when's the last time you pushed yourself into something that was a bit uncomfortable for you that you that you might admit was a bit stretching a little bit out of my comfort zone if you can't answer those questions you've probably been sitting in your easy chair for far too long see failure is not a bad thing we cannot be afraid to fail i'm sure caleb got a couple of wounds from fighting his giants he didn't let that stop him from growing And the things that scare us only scare us until we get used to them. And then you need something bigger to scare you. That's growth. So there's this verse in 2 Corinthians. If you want to turn there, it's worth your time. Don't don't lose Joshua. We're going to finish up in here. But in 2 Corinthians 12, I wonder if we sometimes don't risk, we don't take on things that scare us we don't make mistakes or 
we try to avoid failure. I wonder if we try to play it safe and comfortable because deep inside we don't understand the power of Christ and the gospel and what it actually teaches and says that he's trying to do in our lives. This is where we have to think biblically because society does not think biblically in this regard. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9. This is Paul and he's talking to these Corinthians and he's sharing about how he chooses to live. And listen to the whole thing about comfort and challenge. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9. God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Come again? God told me, Paul says, I learned that where I mess up, where I'm weak, where I feel uncomfortable, and I feel like I'm not qualified for these things, God's power is coming to its fullest fruition there. God's power is not in my comfortable chair, my favorite sitting room by the fire with the tea kettle about to sing. That is not where God's power is. That's where my self-contained environment is, but not the power of God in me. So he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, what am I going to do with that truth? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Those things we try to hide in our lives or those challenges that we're just avoiding because we don't want to see anybody watch us fall flat on our face like my son as he's learning to walk. We don't want people to see that happen to us. We usually try to hide those weaknesses, stay away from the situations. Paul's saying, "Uh uh-uh, I'm going to be obnoxious about them. I'm going to boast about them. I'm going to walk into them, step into them, embrace them, and let people see. So therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The power of Christ will rest upon me as I go into my weakness, not as I sit in my comfy, strengthened position where I am comfortable and I haven't failed for a very long time or ever been scared. God's power does not rest in there. When you're sitting in the very dead center of your comfort zone, you are magnified because your control, your power, your gifts, the things that you've mastered over time, you get to exhibit those all the time. And who's getting the credit for that? Who's getting the glory for that? Whose strength are you relying on in life because of that? You, you and yours. It's when I step out of my comfort zone and just straddle that line. And remember, we're not saying just abandon yourself to something that you can't handle. That's not good either. But just one foot in discomfort and one foot in something I can do. And Paul says, that is where the power of God shows up in life. So verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I am content. In other words, I'm learning to be comfortable with what is uncomfortable. I am learning to say that comfort and courage can coexist. But I do not want to side with pure comfort. 
That's the gospel. And I want you to consider your example, our Joshua. By the way, Joshua and Jesus is the same name in Hebrew. It's Yeshua. I want you to consider our Joshua, who left his comfy, cozy, powerful position in heaven to become a human, slightly weak, slightly limited in comparison. He stepped into the ultimate discomfort, and he walked among us. And it's because Christ came to us that the power of God was shown in his life. Now, hypothetical exercise, what if Jesus didn't come? Yeah, it'd be very different, wouldn't it? Because he stepped into discomfort, the world has been blessed. The world has been changed. You have been changed what would happen if we follow the same example? And who is suffering or not getting the blessings of God and the power of God in our lives because we're sitting in our cozy chair? Yeah, Jesus showed us, hey, teeter-totter comfort and challenge. So let's go back to Joshua and wrap up. I told you three sections. So we looked at 14, Caleb asking for the giants. We looked at 22, what happens when you don't have giants to fight? You create giants in the people around you and you fight them. And then chapter 23 and 24. Chapters 23 and 24 are the last two of the book. And these are where Joshua is giving his farewell address to the people because he's about to die. This is his last words. Joshua is very aware of what's at stake. So his last words are words of challenge to them, saying... I know the land is conquered, and I know that you're going to have this tendency to say, hey, let's just live like everybody around us because that's easier. So Joshua wants to challenge them, and I want us to pull out some, hear some of his advice as if he's talking to us in our context. So in verse 6, 23 verse 6, Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. You have the Bible. Be strong to do what's in it. Read it intentionally. And most of us plan to read the Bible. And that means that it's hit and miss. But if you intend to, and you have an intention, and you have a time, and you have a specific verse to read, you're more likely to do it. You're more likely to get to it. And Joshua is encouraging us to be very strong, to keep it, get into it. And so now he's got some reasons. Um, because when you are in God's word, you turn aside, um, well, keep his word. Turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. So it keeps you going in the right direction. That you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. That would be the easy thing to do. But, verse 8, you shall cling to Yahweh your God, just as you have done to this day. For Yahweh has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is Yahweh who fights for you, just as he promised you. So be careful, therefore, to love Yahweh your God. So that's the challenge. Don't go with the people here. Don't go with the negative flow, the bad flow, the cultural flow. You need to 
be very careful. Stick to my word. Choose to love me. Cling to me. And then verse 12 is the warning. If you choose the easy path, if you don't challenge yourself, verse 12, for if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that Yahweh your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they will be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that Yahweh your God has given you. There's a little break, and then Joshua has Sermon 2. And in uh, chapter 24, verse 1, he gives them the history, a really great paragraph history of Israel's existence. And in verse 14, it comes to his point. So twenty-four, fourteen. Now, therefore, fear, which means respect, have reverence for, have preference for Yahweh, and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve Yahweh. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve Yahweh, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell now. But as for me and my house, we will challenge ourselves. We're not going to sit in the comfy cozy cultural chair of the Canaanites around us. We will continue to press toward the edge of our comfort zone. We will serve Yahweh. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the choice before us. And so for you and I, we can live in the center of our comfort. It's easy. Or we can live on the edge of our comfort. I do not say abandon your comfort, but live on the edge of it. Because it's only when you're at the perimeter that you can push it outward another foot. And that's growth. And that's how you're going to live in the promised land, the purpose and the meaning and the calling and the vision and the dream that he has for you to live here in this life. So living on the edge of your comfort zone. First and foremost, why don't we choose to serve him. In the way that Caleb mentioned, you might have noticed it said three times in chapter 14, I wholly followed the Lord my God. Living on the edge of your comfort is to wholly follow God. A comfortable life says, I will follow him up to this point. I will follow him in the areas that are convenient, like belief. I like believing Jesus is the son of God and he died for my sins because I don't like sin. But when Jesus says things like, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you, eh, that's optional. I mean, come on, let's be honest, that doesn't really fit with my center of comfort. But to choose to fully follow the Lord, yeah, that means doing those things too that Jesus wasn't very popular for. (laughs) Living on the edge, fully, fully, wholly following him. Um, Second, we can learn to listen to people. One of the lessons I see in the East versus West conflict is so prevalent in our present context. We would, just, we would just rewrite that whole story and it would be no different at all. We would rewrite it and say, the Republicans and the Democrats. And it's the exact same story. Why, ha- why did that story happen? Yes, we said on one hand, there's a lack of challenge and boredom. And that's very true in most of Americans' lives. But second, there's no listening The West side said, oh, the East side is wrong for doing this without even knowing why they did it. What would have happened if the West side said, hey, notice this magnificent altar. That's really cool. Tell me about it. 
What would have happened if there was a conversation? Both sides would have said, oh, we're really not as different as we thought. And that's really uncomfortable for some of us. I know because of Facebook and social media, we like to firmly plant ourselves in the center of our political party, which is comfortable. That's understandable. But what if God was far more liberal than you imagined? And what if he was far more conservative than you imagined? He is God after all. So what if it was in our best interest, if you're very conservative, to learn to be conversant with a liberal? And if you're very liberal, to learn to be conversant with a conservative? Would that not be growth in a very good direction? And would that not be what God would do? Um, If you think that God is one party or the other, I want you to go back to Joshua 5 and listen to that message because it will rattle, rattle your assumptions. So we need to listen. We need to choose to fully follow the Lord. These are living on the edge of our comfort zone. And then finally, we need to read the Bible. Like Joshua said to them, be strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Because we need to read the Bible. Um, That might sound obvious, but I don't know that we're always reading it. Like words are going through our minds or over our eyes, but actually, let me rephrase it. We need to let the Bible read us. And maybe that's the thing is we are so used to reading it and studying it and kind of having answers about it that we're very comfortable with it. And we don't really want it to to come out of its cage and read us and start changing our lives. That's dangerous. I think it was Napoleon who said that the Bible was a dangerous, it's dangerous if it's let out of its cage. Uh, If we let the Bible read us, you will get uncomfortable at times. And that's a good thing. It's a very good thing. Growth is happening there. And so maybe also um, learning to study it. And maybe from like a commentary, if you're like into studying, that's great. But maybe go to a name you're not as familiar with and just go cautiously and be challenged. Like, oh, yeah, I've never read the Bible from a Jewish point of view. Maybe I should read it from a Jewish point of view. Um, not really keen on the Calvinist agenda, but maybe I should read it from one of their perspectives. They do have a really big view of God. Um, maybe those British folk just caught eye contact with Richard. You know, those British folk and their Anglican way of seeing the Bible. Uh, maybe there's something there too, you know? Challenge yourself, but don't leave completely comfort behind because then you're going to be lost. So, I think Jesus would want us, as he did, to live on the edge of our comfort zone. And we will see ourselves growing and blossoming in the promised land rather than losing it. Let's pray.